Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Vitaly Katzenelson was born in Murmansk, USSR, and immigrated to the United States with his family in 1991. Vitaly became CEO of Investment Management Associates in 2012 and has written two books on investing and for publications including Financial Times, Barron's, Institutional Investor, and Foreign Policy. Vitaly's articles can also be found at ContrarianEdge.com and on the Intellectual Investor Podcast. Soul in the Game is a book of inspiring stories and hard-won lessons on how to live a meaningful life. Drawing from the lives of classical composers, ancient Stoics, and contemporary thinkers, Katzenelson weaves together a tapestry of practical wisdom that has helped him overcome his greatest challenges in work, family, identity, health, and in dealing with success, failure, and more. Part autobiography, part philosophy, part creativity manual, Soul in the Game is a unique and vulnerable exploration of what works and what doesn't in the attempt to shape a fulfilling and happy life. Vitaly, I'm so excited to be speaking with you today, and thank you so much for being a guest on One Symphony. Uh, We've known each other for a pretty long time. I, I really enjoyed your book, Soul in the Game. You came to me through music. Um, through your love of music, through both of our love of great art and music. Uh, you know, you were on a board of the Arapaho Philharmonic for a bit, and um, and I've taken interest in your work and your thoughts and your just sort of process for being human for a very long time. And I just wanted to start out by asking you, can you just talk about classical music in your life? Because this is a different interview than one I've ever done. Usually I'm interviewing musicians, composers, performers, um, sort of, uh, I've, we've done a poet before. I see, especially, I mean, I knew, you know, you as a person, but I see now, especially in the book, how much classical music drives your life. And I just love to kind of ask you about your relationship with it. Yeah, no, you're, you're interviewing a civilian for a change. Yeah. So classical music came to, into my life to some degree was kind of almost like my mother's milk to, you know, to, because I, you know, I was growing up in, you know, I grew up in Russia. My mom actually studied and played violin, but she already, you know, by the time she had me, she already forgot how to play violin. My parents listened to classical music. When we go to new, like we we lived in Murmansk, which is a city in the north of Russia, in the northwest of Russia, which, like you have to realize, this was the Soviet times where buying classical music records was not easy. Like it's, you know, it's like we couldn't buy many of them in Murmansk. So when we would go to Moscow or go to another big city, my parents would go to a store and look for classical music records and buy them. So we had a classical music records at home and they would listen to classical music and they never forced me into it, but they would take me to classical music concerts. So they kind of figured out this recipe for, you know, they would bribe me with, uh, with sweets. They would go to a concert and in the, in the, in, uh, during intermission, they would buy they would buy me some kind of you know sweet cake or something or 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 soda, 
And that's why I went uh, to concerts. I remember I went to uh, Prince Eager. I forget the opera. Like the, uh, and I remember I absolutely hated the opera. Well, I didn't get it. Yeah, I was, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. But I remember my father bought me this you know, delicious cake and intermission. That's the only thing I remember from the opera. But also, I got lucky because uh, my, I'm the youngest. Uh, you know, I have two older brothers. And my older brothers were actually, they went to musical school. And they took piano lessons. And I think they absolutely hated it. And I think, actually, I think it's the wrong word because I know they hated it because my brother literally pulled keys out of piano so he could not, you know, so they would not force him to practice anymore. So I think this was a cry for help. And so my parents finally pulled him out of the musical school. I'm going to edit all that out because I don't want any young music student to pull keys out of their piano. Yeah, you don't want to give, you don't want to give them any ideas. That's right. That's right. <laughs> But the interesting thing happened that my oldest brother, who been subjected to music lessons the longest, now is completely indifferent to classical music. My middle brother, who suffered less, when we go to concerts, he likes that experience. But I don't think he has this burning desire to listen to classical music. Because I was the youngest, two things happened. Number one, I think my parents learned the lesson and did not push me into classical music, you know, to take music lessons. And also, my mom died when I was 10. And I think like maybe six months later, my father took me to, for piano lessons. And he did not have the energy to keep pushing me. And I did not show that I had much talent or much interest. So it's kind of faded away until I was 21 years old or 22. I watched the movie called Shine about Rachmaninoff concerto number three. And I remember that, like, I knew his second concerto, but I didn't really know much about the third. And that concerto basically, like, took my life by storm. And I, I realized I wanted to start taking music lessons. Then when you realize I'm a 20, I forget, I'm 20 something years old, maybe 21 years old. And I insist, instead of doing the ABCs, I start with the Rock 3, probably the most difficult piano concerto ever written. And this was my kind of ABC to classical music. I failed miserably. And in all, in all fairness, I just have absolutely no musical talent. So I somehow, like, somehow I got attracted to classical music. And I think in part because it was always in the background and I wasn't pushed into it. Another thing I remember, my introduction to Liszt. I'm 12 years old, maybe 10 years old. I'm Sunday morning, my father and I walking outside and we lived in this huge apartment building. And from the fourth floor, one of our neighbors is blasting some kind of music that I did not know. And my father says, oh, she's listening to Liszt. And I tell you this, I just remember, this is 40 years ago or more. And to this day, I remember how much respect and love my father put into saying this. And I guess to some degree, if you look, you know, if you look psychologically, we want to please our parents. And maybe this is kind of, well, this is why I kind of, and subconsciously, you know, if you Freud put me on a couch, that's probably, it would take me 20, you know, 20 sessions to arrive to that. But um, I realized this is how I kind of got to classical music. It's just, you know, my parents nudged me just a little bit, never too harsh, and just making observations that were very positive about it. 
you know, and over time, I just started to listen to classical music more and more as it became more accessible as I moved to the United States. Uh, I remember I had a job there where it was 30-minute drive each way. So I had plenty of time to listen to classical music. And I listened to Brooks' Violin Concerto probably about 300 times because I would listen to it, you know, on the way to work and back. That's a very long answer to your very simple question, how I got into classical music. You probably listened to the Brook uh, G minor violin concerto as many times as Brook did, because after a while, he told people who would come to play it for him, he told them to go play something else. Like, you got tired of it. Well, I got to tell you something interesting. And um, Best Buy used to, you know, like I, I'm, I'm 20 something years old, I'm making very little money, but I wanted to buy classical music. So Best Buy had this, when you walk into the store, they had a, it has this rack where it had Dow 99 CDs. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of classical music CDs, down in the nine CDs. And I think all of them came from some kind of Eastern European orchestra. None of them were mm-hmm. the, from you know, New York Philharmonic or whatever, or for, I mean, from Billy Philharmonic or whatever. Though there's probably nothing wrong with those recordings. But I was introduced to classical music, to, you know, to the larger part of classical music through the Eastern European recordings of it. So hmm. it's, it's funny you say that. I was just at a, a piano festival we were doing a session with conductors talking with keyboard, you know, piano soloists and mm-hmm. how you prepare to come solo with an orchestra. And mm-hmm. I had mentioned that, you know, for pianists getting ready, like what do you do before that first orchestra rehearsal where you have, you know, it's two days before the concert, you sit down, maybe you've, you've played the concerto the first time, this is your first time playing it. And, mm-hmm. and I suggested, you know, don't listen to the Berlin Philharmonic or the Vienna Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic. Mm-hmm. Listen mm-hmm. to some of these, like like you said, like kind of mid level, regional, Eastern European orchestras that are that people go to make recordings on the cheap, because you know they're they're not at the level of of the Vienna Philharmonic where mm-hmm. you can't really hear where things can go wrong, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Like, but mm-hmm. in these kind of mid level recordings, even you know any orchestra that's not one of those top orchestras, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to hear things that that will prepare you to be mm-hmm. with an orchestra. Because generally speaking, a young soloist is is soloing with, you know, a, not the top, you know, not the New York yeah, Philharmonic. Yeah, yeah. So they need oh, to know what might happen. And sometimes on those recordings, even, even like with Herbert von Karajan and the Berlin Phil in like the 60s and 70s, they were going through, they were trying to record everything. So they, uh-huh. they, they just, they, sometimes they didn't even rehearse it. They put a Tchaikovsky symphony down. So you listen to some of these symphonies and there are so many kind of just not mistakes, but like things that like are not together that you, you can tell they're just trying to plow through the repertoire or something. So oh, that's um, interesting. Uh, no, that's cool. Makes, makes a lot of sense.
You know, my mantra is that music gives us a roadmap to live. All these dead composers are artists and they have so much relevance, so much to teach us. And when I read your book, I was looking forward to, it's kind of like you you leave the classical music as a dessert platter. I, I was looking forward to getting to that, but I found myself so enthralled and so, you know, just all nodding or I have to show this to my wife. You know, I was listening to it on audiobook and I was, you know, re- rewinding it and playing it for her. And there's all these great, just kind of, you talk about the Stoics, you talk about your kids a lot, you talk about mm-hmm. a lot of lessons you've learned and mistakes you've made, but it all, it all comes back to this idea of classical music and, and, and these artists like Jen Tchaikovsky who failed, who basically wrote his emotions into his music. But for, for example, the, the first piano concerto, the violin concerto, nobody would mm-hmm. play it. Um, Schubert, who essentially died a pauper and felt like a failure and felt like he could never measure up to the success of Beethoven. And outside of the music, I'm sure the examples abound as well in in terms of dancers, writers, Mm -hmm. other creatives. Can you just maybe talk about, sum up as an investor, how you are finding value and relevance to the composers that you're discussing? That is such a great question. Let me tell you how this book came about, because I think that may answer part of the question. I started writing about investing in 2004. So I've been writing for a long time about investing. And slowly, as, as, you know, the longer I've been doing it, the more it turned turn into a craft and the art element started to kind of escape. Therefore, I started to write more about life, you know, because I have all these degrees in finance, et cetera. I taught investments at university. This is my day job. So I'm the guy who should be writing about investing. But over time, I started to write about life, about trips, about different things that happened to me. And then one day I started to include classical music. At the time now I could, YouTube was already there. So I could include YouTube links. In my investment emails, I would have a section about classical music. And in the beginning, I would just include uh, links to performances. But then I started to kind of write about the composers. Again, what does it mean I started to write? Well, I had to read a lot. So I had started to read a lot more. And the more I read, the more I realized that there are so many similarities between composing music and any creative activity. And so let me me bring you how this, this book came about. So I have a you know, large readership. And these people who read my articles, they come from my investment articles. But over time, I started to get these emails which say, Vitaly, I came to you for your investment articles, but I don't believe staying for your life, you know, for your life stories and classical music. And some people would say, you should write, you know, you should take your articles and put them into a book, you know, just about non-investment topics. And I always dismissed it. And then August 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, I am writing about Tchaikovsky Sixtet for strings. And I started to do more research on this. And I read the letters he wrote to his brother and uh, I think Nadezhda Van Mack and others. For Tchaikovsky, this was a new type of composition. He was not familiar with that. And I think he, I forget how, you know, why he wrote it, but it was basically a favor to somebody. And if you read his letters, he was completely miserable writing it. Completely miserable. And he was complaining all the time. And as as I was reading this, I realized he's describing my experience as a writer. When I write, I go through all the same emotions. So I ended up writing this article where I basically wrote about Tchaikovsky's struggles and how they relate to writing and kind of provided solutions to that. 
And uh, after was, I finished the article, I realized, oh my God, this could actually help somebody. Like really, like somebody who is struggling as a writer, they could see that when we listen to Tchaikovsky music. So today we listen to Tchaikovsky music and we are mesmerized by that. Mm-hmm. But what we don't realize, how much he struggled to write it. And we take that for granted. And so after I wrote this essay about this, I realized, oh my God, if I just take my articles, I already kind of been doing it for a long time and put them into a book, this could actually help others. It, this could help people who you know, struggle in, in, you know, as a parents or whatever. Just there are so many life stories. Around. Anyway, that's how my book came about. But that's why I'm so attracted to composers because there's so many lessons we can learn from them. And I think, and this is what I try to convey uh, in my book. And uh, I'll draw a parallel between Schubert and investing. And by the way, a long, long time ago, and I think I actually even wrote about this, you played one of the Schubert's pieces. And before the concert, we gave a talk where you talk about Schubert's uh, being in the shadow of Beethoven. So, so you should get yeah. part of the credit. It was called that. Beethoven's Shadow, that concert. And it was Schubert's Unfinished, right? The, the, the yeah, seventh, yeah, yeah, E yeah, minor. Yeah. So Schubert's, you know, I, you know, I'm going to, you, you can tell, you can do so much better job telling the story. But, you know, to simplify this, you know, Schubert lives in, you know, in, in Vienna where Beethoven is this incredible superstar. He's not just superstar in Vienna. He's kind of the Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra, and uh, Beyonce all together around the world, right? If you're a composer and you're composing something, anything you do compose is always compared to Beethoven. And Beethoven says, you know, with every piece he writes, he sets these new standards and elevates them and creates new type of music. And as a composer, you feel you don't measure up. That's why you feel like you're in the shadow of Beethoven. And as you mentioned, Schubert, when he died, most of his work wasn't published for this reason. And in any profession, I would argue, so this is where the parallel is with almost any profession. In any profession, you're going to have this incredible superstar. Uh, like in the investing, there was Warren Buffett. And I don't want to turn this podcast too much into investing podcast, but this is, a, you know, this is an interesting analogy. So when Warren Buffett, who is 80, 90-something years old, in his late 70s, and in his 70s, said, I don't buy technology stocks because I don't understand them. Which kind of makes sense for a guy who is 70-something years old, who lived, spent most of his life living in a, in a time where there was very little technology, decides that he's going to focus on things he understands. So he's not going to buy technology stocks. But what happened, a lot of 20-year-olds listened to that and said, listen, I'm not going to buy technology stocks because I don't, I don't understand it. So what they did, they just parakeet Buffett. okay, And they just basically kind of stayed in the shadow of Buffett without escaping the shadow. And again, that does not diminish Schubert's music. But I would argue that if maybe if he, you know, he would have a lot more self-confidence and maybe to try mm. to get his music performed if he didn't feel like, you know, he doesn't measure up to Buffett. And by the way, uh, and all the listeners who love Beethoven and he's not even my favorite composer. Like I would listen Schubert over Beethoven anytime. This is me. Mm. Okay. And I'm sorry for this, but this is, again, doesn't, doesn't mean I'm right. It just, I'm not saying this. I'm just saying Schubert clicks more with me than Beethoven. It's somehow it's tuned more into my melancholy or whatever. I can listen to his whole symphony from start to finish. And I'll be honest, I don't think I ever finished listening to Beethoven 9th from start to finish. You know, I love parts of it, but not the whole symphony. 
Again, it doesn't make it right. It's just, this is how I'm wired. You know, if you put on some glasses, you would have a, a, a semblance of Schubert's, of his face with the beard and everything. <laughs> you know, well, you, you, you've already lived a lot longer than him. <laughs> well, that's true. And I, no, there's a, I'm just unshaved and uh, yeah, no, it's I'm just, but, but um, getting out of the shadow of other in any creative profession, in any creative endeavor, there's always going to be somebody who is a lot more successful than you are. And I think you should be looking to find how you're different and not just, not just think about what this person thinks, but more importantly, to think how this person thinks. And this is important because what the lesson you should have gotten from Warren Buffett is not that you should not, as an investor, you should not be buying technology stocks. The lesson you should have gotten that you should be staying in a circle of competence. For Buffett, that was technology stocks were not that. And so he did not buy technology stocks. For you, that may be a circle of confidence. And uh, the irony of this whole thing with Buffett, five or seven years ago, Buffett takes 10, 15 billion dollars or some huge amount of money, if I get, and buys Apple, which is a, the largest technology company in the world. And he makes, this is one of the most successful investments ever made because of how much money he made. Not, not in the rate of return, but how much money he made. So Buffett grew. The old Buffett would not buy technology stocks, but this new Buffett has learned how to look Apple differently and he bought Apple. And so, you know, this is one of the lessons we can learn from Schubert. And now one thing that I would argue, and you, you can please disagree with me, but we will never really know the damage Beethoven caused to classical music because how many other Schubert's? <laughs> no, no, really. How many other Schubert's never published their music? Like, really, how many? Like, Schubert's was discovered by, you know, rediscovered by Mendelssohn, right? If I remember right, after his death. But how many Schubert's are out there that, you know, just never published their work because they never measured up to Beethoven? Okay, again, I, I'm not, this is not anti Beethoven show, I mean, in a podcast. And this that's, is not. That, the, that's going to be the quote on the, on the picture for the podcast. You know, we'll never know how much damage Beethoven caused to classical music. He, he Look, actually did. I mean? he, like, he did. Yeah, he did cause a lot of damage. He, he broke the box. He demolished the whole thing. But, but I, think, I think that's a cool point. And it's interesting that you take to Schubert more um, than Beethoven uh, because I think, I mean, most people, that is the populist way to go is Beethoven. But I can see, you know, Schubert wrote so many songs. Like he sat at the piano and he sang and yeah. um, he had the Schubertiads where he brought his friends together. And, you know, in the afternoons, they started just playing music together and drinking mm -hmm. and eating. But I can see he's got this kind of soulful song, you know, kind of melody that mm -hmm. he creates. Beethoven doesn't, doesn't, I mean, of course, Beethoven writes great melodies, no question. But mm -hmm. Beethoven doesn't, I feel, have this ability. And that's why Beethoven wanted to be an opera composer. He only wrote one, you know, Leonora later changed to Fidelio. And that yeah. kind of was a bomb in many ways. Uh -huh. So he never uh -huh. got back to it. You know, Schubert, you said, you know, I, I don't remember how many operas he had. He had 15 or 20 operas or something that were never played. But Schubert has this ability to, to, to take a line. And I think Bruckner, you talk about Bruckner too. I think Bruckner yeah. takes a lot from Schubert has this ability to look at these larger forms and create melodies that really go right. And, and Tchaikovsky loved Schubert too. Obviously he loved Mozart, um, yeah. but he loved Schubert. Beethoven was, he was just trying to break everything apart in every way in his life. I mean, from the fact that, you know, he couldn't 
keep an apartment for more than a year in Vienna because he was such a such a mm. slob, so to speak, to the fact that he would, you know, he would owe money at all these bars. He would get kicked out of all these bars that he went to because he didn't pay his bills and he mm. made a mess and he made a he made a scene all the time. I think just his way, he, he just wasn't meant for this earth in many ways. He couldn't really live here. So he brought this music that really exploded everything, you know, and, and like you said, it, it, it did. I, I think I've never thought about that. I mean, we, I do think sometimes about, you know, if there's, you know, there's Mozart, there's, there's Haydn, there's Schubert, you know, then there's Beethoven, of course, but how many, how many, I mean, there's hunt, there's dozens of composers writing at the level of these composers in the time in Vienna and how much music was lost, how much music, music was not published. You know, it's, it's really something cool to think about. You know, like when I discover a composer that is, is unknown, and I usually email it to you, or unknown at least, like I thought it was, you know, the composer was unknown. It was unknown to me at least. Uh, like Eugene Dalbert, right, who mm -hmm. wrote these beautiful piano concertos, or uh, I forget the guy's first name, Moskovsky, who, uh, who wrote this incredible piano concertos. And they're absolutely incredible piano concertos, but you never hear them perform. And uh, because... Yeah, you know, I heard that uh, I, uh, recently. I heard a story about why Mona Lisa is so famous as the painting. Do you know the story? It's a, it's a beautiful story. So the the Mona Lisa, you know, was in in Louvre in the Louvre forever. Like you know, as the Vinci's Mona Lisa there was forever, and then in the uh, in the beginning of last century, it gets stolen, and it's basically was it one day it suddenly disappeared from the wall. And it basically creates this international headlines. Like it's in newspapers around the world for years. For like, because, you know, the mystery of this. And even Pablo Picasso is accused because he lived not far away of that he might have stolen. And then somebody else gets, I forget, uh, JP, I think JP Morgan or somebody else gets accused of that. It's basically becomes this huge story. And then they find that this guy who, this Italian guy who lived nearby just basically went, went into the gallery, uh, in, into, into the museum, took it and went home. And he claimed that he did it for, uh, for nationalistic reasons because he felt it belongs to Italy. Anyway. You know, and uh, and when he tries to sell it, they catch him. And so when they return Mona Lisa to to Louvre, it becomes this this iconic painting that we talk about today, mm. right? So like I look at this, I'll be honest, and this is like I'm, so I'm, now I'm going to go into history as a anti Beethoven guy and anti Mona Lisa. I'm indifferent, like I'm not first of all, I'm not anti Beethoven, but I'm completely indifferent to Mona Lisa. Like does absolutely nothing for me. I went to Louvre, I looked at it. It was under this very protective glass, et cetera. It looked like, you know, it just didn't do anything for me. But if it was not stolen, it probably would have been just another painting. Mm -hmm. In uh, And you would argue that if uh, Leonard Bernstein did not, you know, did not, was not a big fan of Mahler, Mahler probably, you know, we would not be listening to his music today. Maybe not. So it's so and random. Say, same with Mendelssohn with Bach. I mean, Mendelssohn yes. revived Bach in the 1830s. Yeah, and to me, actually, Mendelssohn is more important—not as a composer as much as a person who brought Schubert, who you know brought Bach as a presenter. You know, yeah, it's a very random which composer we listen to today, and there's so many composers that kind of went into the footnotes of history just because they didn't have that luck, like they didn't have the Leonard Bernstein or Mendelssohn or. Uh, their work was not stolen or something, you know, and, uh, you know, etc. So. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think it's cool how you talk about this idea of comparing, you know, um, and you say in the book, mm-hmm. um, don't let the external environment barge in and set goals for you. Right. And then you talk yes. about the investor who jumped off the building yeah. who mistakenly lent his self-worth to his portfolio. And I think anybody like I'm in the arts, so I don't, I've never been in anything else. So, but we compare ourselves constantly. We, we think of, I think of myself as a conductor as, instead of just like a human being who's, you know, a, a husband, a father, a person. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's mm-hmm. so easy to do that. And I think that's, that's a trap that everybody falls into and you can let it eat away at you little by little, or you can say, this is who I am. And it's, and, and then you bring up this idea of using pain and harvesting pain. And I think that's, and one of my great mentors said the, called it the ugly face of opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I'm that's like the it. hallmark of these great composers. Tchaikovsky could have easy, easily killed himself. And he arguably did, you know, when he was in his fifties. Can you imagine um, like but Ch- how boring his music would have been if he was a straight man? Yeah. He, he would have an easy life. Yeah. He wouldn't have had to hide anything. And, you know, Sh- Schubert could have not continued to write. None of his stuff was ever published. So who's listening to it? He's writing for himself, just like you wrote your book yeah, for yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, I would love to maybe hear a little bit about that idea of, 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 of harvesting pain because, yeah. because, because that's the thing about life. Everybody's, you're going to get hit with pain, right? If it doesn't come when you're 40, it's going to come when you're 50. If it doesn't come, when you're, you know, it's going to hit you. You're going to get knocked down probably multiple times. And it's more about how you, that's an opportunity. If you do anything creative, it comes with pain. Because think about it. Imagine instead of being a conductor or a musician or a writer or an investor, you and I were, had a job of working on a Fiat or General Motors assembly line. How much predictability do we have in our life? You would come to work, you do the same thing over and over again for eight hours, you go home. There is completely no art in what you do, right? It's just, it's a you know, complete predictability, etc. Now, when you do something creative, but almost by definition, there is uncertainty. And that uncertainty comes with upside and downside. Upside is that this, this feeling of curiosity, you're kind of curious, how is it, what, what is going to look like when I'm done with that? But then there is also fear of failure. And this, it's these two conflicting emotions like one is, this is, it happens to me every time I sit down to write because I have no idea how it's going to look like when I'm done with that. And there's a fear of failure and, a f- and, and, this, and this curiosity and they constantly conflict. And guess what? Sometimes I fail, you know, and, and I fail plenty as, an, you know, as, a, as a writer, as an investor, etc. When you fail, that's where the pain comes from. And you should not be doing anything creative if you don't expect that at some point you're going to have pain. This is like negative, like Stoics would call it negative visualization. So you have to, as a conductor, you have to basically accept the fact that at some point you're going to study a new piece of music with the orchestra and you guys are going to suck. And that is just part of you pushing your boundaries and you learning new things. You're creating new things. Because I would guarantee if you played Unfinished Symphony, performed it every day for three years, it would have sound perfect. Though I would argue maybe in the year two, you would have lost, it would have lost the whole soul because there would be all craft and no art at that point. But anyway, but the, but the point is, it's because you constantly pick new repertoire, new music. This is when you grow. If you think about 
composers. I don't know if you can name a single happy composer. Maybe there are, but uh, but you know, Beethoven was deaf. You know, Tchaikovsky, Britten, Barber, Bernstein. I mean, they're all yes, even you know, some degrees of success. You know, varying. They're yeah. all if you get into their lives. There was a plenty of not, misery. Yeah, they didn't live for themselves, so to speak. Brooke, Bruckner was basically celibate because I mean, he was looking for a bride. You know, his whole life. He was a you know, kind of religious fanatic looking for a and life. And he was you know, he life. was God's property. Somewhere, that's right. You know? That's right. He was right for God. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. He was the least from God. Yes. And so, but uh, Rachmaninoff, I mean, actually, this is the one actually, like, I used to be proud to be from Russia. Not anymore. So now I say I'm from USSR. But, you know, if I think about Rachmaninoff, like, composers, they're very dear to me. And maybe because I came from Russia, maybe that's somehow the music clicks with me more, like Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. And, you know, I think uh, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, he wrote it after he failed with his first symphony. That failure was so significant that I think he was in therapy for a few years. You know, and we will never know the truth, but I, I would argue if he didn't, you know, if he didn't fail his first symphony, his second concerto would have been very different. We don't know worse, better or worse, but I... I think it's perfect. So whatever it would have been would not be as good. And the funny thing about that, and I loved that section in your book when you talk about Rachmaninoff, is that the first symphony, and, and I've, because I've done the, you know, the Rhapsody on the theme of Paganini, I've done the symphonic variations, I've never done the first symphony, um, but the first symphony is fantastic music. That's the thing, like you find about all these, all these like big failures and, you know, and composer that, I mean, if you play the long game and sometimes, yeah, that's after you're dead, it wasn't a failure. It was a success. And sometimes I think we put too much, and you talk a lot about this and, mm-hmm. and, or you make this point. It's that we put a lot of stock in what other people say about us, like in about oh whether, whether it's critics and classical music or this fear of failure, like we talked about. Yes. I mean, Buffett you know, has a term for this internal scorecard or external scorecard, okay? Stoics would call it the academy of control. And they would say some things are up to us and some things aren't. Well, the things that are up to us are so limited. It's basically, it's uh, your character, your values. It's what you do. When, when it comes to composing music or creating art, it's your effort. That's all you can do. Your, it's your process, your effort. And then the outcome is completely, or it's even more, It's even if you create this wonderful piece of work, if you're lucky, it will be stolen and it will become this masterpiece. You know, it will become in a, the painting everybody goes to in a museum. If you're unlucky and it's not stolen or whatever, then guess what? It's a completely not up to you. The sad story I told in the book about this value investor, who a guy actually I've met uh, a few times, who was... First of all, he, the, uh, what's important to understand, this guy was worth a few hundred million dollars. He had a very respected in the industry. But value investing, like it's like as a style, was going through a very difficult time. And he basically had a positive, but kind of uh, not, ex- not inspiring return for 10 years. And he identified himself as a value investor, and that was his main identity. And uh, one day, you know, as I write in the book, he basically went up to the, you know, 10th, you know, took elevator to the 10th floor of his building and plunged to his death. And he was, I don't know, 50 something years old. The irony of this, if he just held his portfolio for three more years, it would have showed incredible returns and it would have proven him right. Okay. This is a very nuanced point I want to make. 
our identity, what we think we are, how we perceive ourselves, is something is under our control. It's something we can be actually right for ourselves. If we are mindful about this, we have an opportunity to carefully craft our identity. Because you are a lot more than a conductor and musician. You're a father. There are so many other things, right? And if we just only create one identity, we are sending ourselves for failure because at some point that identity, that part of identity will misfire and we'll be miserable. So we have to carefully curate how we frame ourselves. My identity is a student of life. I'm a person who wants to continue to learn. One big advantage of this is that I look at failure differently. Like I'll give you an example. And in, um, in my old age, I decided I'm going to start taking chess seriously. You know, I played chess all my life, but I always played it kind of just as a, like sometimes I didn't play for a decade. So I never took chess lessons, never took it seriously. But now that my kids are playing chess, especially my 16-year-old daughter, I feel like, first of all, I don't like losing to her. But second, and uh, as importantly, I realize as I get older, you know, we go to gym to exercise our body. But we actually need to exercise our brain as well. And chess is that exercise that I actually really enjoy. But I'll tell you this, I lose chess a lot. When I play chess, I, play, you know, I lose a lot. And if I approach chess as a student of life, basically failure or losing games is just part of a learning experience, it doesn't sin as much. And so my ego does not take over. And because you know, what happens after you lose plenty, you say, I don't, I don't want to play this game, I, I lose. Or you can say, oh my God, this is such a great learning experience. This is what I learned this time I lost. If somebody reads the book, this is very clear, but maybe you can answer this to put some butts in the seats. How much have your kids influenced kind of all the lessons that you've laid out here and the learning experiences as a student of life? I think your kids allow you to experience life again, kind of from a fresh perspective. We just came from a trip uh, from Europe for, uh, and I went with my two older kids and we spent, uh, we basically visited four countries. We spent uh, three days in the um, uh, Netherlands with my youngest daughter, uh, with my middle daughter. And uh, we spent uh, seven days in Switzerland, Italy, and France with you know, both kids. And I cannot tell you how much joy I received looking through at Europe through my daughter's eye because she's been there for the first time. For her, everything that we went to was fresh. She was shocked how beautiful these lakes are in Switzerland, how rude French are to you in France, and how, like, you know, all these different, you know. Uh, and um, um, I, uh, like, my kids is probably, you know, like, I, I would argue that a lot of my intellectual development is thanks to my kids because I just kind of, when I'm teaching them, when I experience life with them, I'm kind of relearning it you know, from a very fresh perspective. As I mentioned chess, I just started playing chess myself you know, more seriously just because my 16-year-old daughter decided when she was 15 that she was to start playing chess and she beats me. Like she, she, she beats me with such an ease that it's you know, somewhat frustrating at times. But I, like, when I lose to her, I, like, when we play, I kind of have this attitude. I always win. Here's why. If I lose... It means she wins, so I'm very proud of her as a father. And when I win, I win. So, so, so that's my attitude. My eight-year-old daughter, uh, you, you can appreciate this. Uh, she's taking music lessons, and she had a new, you know, she had a change in the music teacher. And the music teacher in the first lesson asked her, "What's your favorite kind of?" You know, she's talking to eight-year-old. 
what's your favorite music? Do you like Disney's Frozen or whatever? And she listens some Disney's movies, etc. And she's like, no, I like this. And honest to God, she plays a few notes from the uh, Pergunt's morning, uh, oh, morning, yeah. morning mood. And, yeah, and yeah, and and then uh, from Dvorak's Symphony Number no. Nine. Like like a wow. few a few notes, just you know, just amazing. So so was I actually? I tell you, she's going to be like, "Who? I have to meet your father." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was on the verge of crying. I gotta tell you, and she, you know, and I, like, and it's kind of interesting. Um, because of my experience with classical music, uh, and my brothers, I never forced my kids to play a musical instrument. So force is not the right word. They took music lessons, piano lessons, and we tried different teachers and neither one of them, like my older kids had an interest in us, you know, none. And my eight-year-old, when she was six or seven, she took music lessons and she hated that. We didn't push her. And then maybe four or five months ago, we have a piano in our living room which is basically just a piece of furniture because nobody plays it. I don't play piano, but it's it's there for my. <laughs> it's good. Kids. It's good for putting like organizing papers on top of it. it. Exactly. That's a, yeah. Exactly. And I've stuffed things that you don't use. Yeah. Put things on top you don't use, and she suddenly sits down and starts kind of playing her own music. And I think as my as a father, that is my responsibility to notice that. And then try to nudge her very carefully into music. And you, you have to be very careful. So when we told her, let's, you know, you know do you want to take music lessons? She's like, absolutely no. And I said, you know, we have this music school and it's right next to a yogurt place. So every time we could take you to a music lesson, you get yogurt. She's like, fine. And now she's like, she, you know, at some point in time, like it's, so at some point, uh, in, you know, we'll take the training wheels off and, she would not be, maybe she'll be using, eating yogurt maybe once every three lessons or, and then yeah. once every 10 lessons. But I think this is like sugar, like people in our society frowns on sugar and I understand why, but I think there's a, it's a really great educational tool. That's what got you into it. That's right. <laughs> and of course it's uh, apropos because the last chapter of your book is don't eat sugar. <laughs> Right. That's or right. That's intermission right. donation. Yeah. And um, actually, well, I was very well, proud of the chapter because I really, I, I didn't know how to finish the book. It's perfect. It's perfect. A little story with the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Was it the Dalai Lama or just a monk? I can't remember. Was Dal- I don't know. It's a, I don't know where I heard this story. It's Dalai Lama. I'm not sure it's even true, but it doesn't matter. Do you want to tell the story? It's a great, it's sure, a great sure. short yeah. story. Yeah. This mother brings her son to Dalai Lama and said, Listen, my son eats just too much sugar. Can you please talk to him? The Lama looks at the mother, looks at the son and says, okay, why did you come back in a month? Okay. The mother says, okay. So in the month, she comes back, brings her son and she says, and she says well, you told me to come back. Here, here we are. The Lama looks at her and the son and says to her son, stop eating sugar. The mother is like shocked. She's like, why did you have to wait a month to come back? Could, you, could, you could have told us the same thing you know, a month ago. He said, yes, you're right. But first, I have to stop eating sugar myself. And this book, to me, is me trying to stop eating sugar. And by the way, the word trying is very important. Is that because if you read this book, it sounds like I'm I'm an expert that never fails at anything I'm writing about. And it's anything but. In fact, Stoic philosophy I'm discussing there, it's a practice. It's a practice because... 
what you're trying to do, you're basically trying to reprogram yourself. Like how, however old you are, whatever you were doing for previous you know, uh, years of your life, you're trying to reprogram yourself. And that reprogramming those habits, et cetera, it's a very lengthy process. That's gonna, where you're going to succeed and you're going to fail a lot. And if you look at it as practice, uh, as you're trying to stop eating sugar, then you realize that when you fail, just think about what you can learn from this. Don't overpenalize yourself. Just keep going forward. I call this uh, the last chapter an intermission because I'm not even 50 years old yet. And who am I to write about this definite book about life? Because whatever thoughts I have today, I might change my mind six months from now or six years from now. So I basically, uh, this is, I, call, I, uh, I call this book Volume 1 because I'll keep writing and I'll keep changing my mind and learning. And then I may rewrite certain things I wrote or write, you know, have new ideas that are contradictory to what I wrote. You also say every day is a new life. Yeah, this, this concept from Seneca is so wonderful. On New Year, we set a New Year's resolution of what we're going to accomplish uh, yeah, for the next year. And People still do know, that? And, huh? Oh, people <laughs> do this. I mean, this like like gym membership skyrocket like, yeah, you know, yeah, in course. the first yeah, weeks yeah. of the year. And then like, you know, on the February 15th, you know, you know we already forgot about it uh, or sooner. Seneca had this idea of what if you look at your day, every day you try to live as your last day or, or as your only day. You behave that day, you, you kind of, you almost like setting you as a resolution for every day. And the, the beauty of that is just it's such a short period of time. It's very, it's very measurable. And if you just have a perfect day or try to get, and by the way, when I say perfect, it doesn't mean when you drive to work, every light is going to be green. What it means is that if you drive to work and every ride, every light is red, you behave in you know according to your values. You don't curse, you don't get stressed about it, and if you keep doing this every day, guess what? You're gonna have a great life. And the interesting part is that because it's only such a short period of time, and then the day, just look back on your day and say, how can I change? What can I tweak to you know uh, for the next day to be better? Well, the book is Soul in the Game by Vitaly Katzenelson. Thanks so much, Vitaly, for joining me on One Symphony today. Uh, you can get the book wherever you get your books. I think it's available on all platforms. I would just recommend anybody in or out of the music business or profession. This is an incredible treatise on life. And thank you, Vitaly, for kind of selling my mission, uh, which is how art and music brings relevance and meaning to our lives. I couldn't have said it better. And I hope everybody gets this book. Thank you, Vitaly. Devin, could I just promote one little thing that has absolutely nothing to do with me? I have this website. It's called My Favorite Classical. Every Saturday, you get a different uh, classical music piece from me. And I share my thoughts about classical music composers. And it's just myfavoriteclassical.com. Again, I see it's my kind of altruistic adventure, kind of venture into classical music. So I hope you're People who listen to this podcast, in addition to getting the book, of course, also sign up for the, you know, go to my favorite classical and sign up for my emails. And then, by the way, there was a, a lot of writing, uh, like there was a lot of music on that website already. So, yeah. And um, that's for myfavoriteclassical.com is for people who are 
know about classical music, but also for people who are just getting into it. And I'm, I'm thinking that your book, Soul in the Game, I think a lot of people are going to read that and say, oh my gosh, look at, look at what classical music can do for me. And I would say, if you check out the book, you know, check out this blog, my favorite classical. Um, And it's also got some brilliant paintings by your father as well that you share. That's right. My brother. Yes. And I have this goal in life. I want people to listen to classical music and love it. But the problem is classical music and sorry, I know the podcast is over, but we keep going. But because I, I think this point is very important. It's never over. It's not it's over, never until, over. Yeah, it's we, we until we stop eating sugar. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I find the, the problem is classical music at times. It's complex. It's, you know, it's a feature in the bug at the same time. It took me, I don't know how many times I had to listen to Rachmaninoff's Symphony Number no. 2 for it to be like click with me. But it, it requires work at a lot of times before you get all the pleasure. Now, I created this. Um, playlist that's on that on on my on my favorite classical.com, which I call a gateway drug to classical music, and the reason I call it gateway drug to classical music because it's a, a carefully curated list where basically I picked pieces that if you listen to and you are indifferent to classical music, if you listen to it, you can't help but fall in love with classical music. I can name some Beethoven Seven, Schubert Unfinished. Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. Four, Tchaikovsky Five, Tchaikovsky Six. Let me disagree with you a little bit. Let me tell you why. You write those, by the way. Those are you listed my favorite piece of music. But like I listened, I give a perfect example. Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. Four. Imagine this. I am in Sydney, Australia. This is where I heard the symphony for the first time, conducted by Vladimir Ashkenazi. I listened to the symphony, and it did absolutely nothing for me. That I listened to for the first time. After the symphony, imagine, I mean, like, this is one of the best orchestras, Vadimir Ashkenazi, you know, conducting it, does nothing for me. And then, then I talk to my father, and he says, oh, my God, that's my favorite symphony. I'm like, how could it be your favorite symphony and just listen to it? It was horrible. He's like, no, it's a great symphony. I listened to it five more times, and it is now my favorite symphony. The problem is the symphony, it's a complex, right? So you don't yeah. get it the first time. Yeah. So, no, so then I know my goal was to do better than that. My goal is eventually to get you hooked on symphony number four. But to get there, I had to create a different playlist. Let me give you some. I pulled it up. Before you read that, let me just respond to that. I think I think that is the trade of classical music. I think, and, and, that's, and that's one of the reasons why I loved it so early, because you can't understand it. There is a separation from it. Like you have to put some time in. But at the same time, I feel like once you've done, say you're somebody like me or an orchestral musician or a pianist, once mm-hmm. you've been doing this for 20, 30 years, our job is to figure out how to bring some listener along the first time, right? So I yes. feel like no matter how great the hall or the orchestra or the conductor, if we didn't pull you in, that's at least partly on us. You know, like it's how we're presenting it. Like, because with Tchaikovsky 4, for example, I feel like if you just play the symphony to uh, somebody who's never heard it or doesn't even know anything about Tchaikovsky, it's going to go over their head. But if you, if you can talk about how, you know, Tchaikovsky's struggle, you know, being, being a gay man, being, you know, having so mm-hmm. many psychological issues and, and essentially, I mean, because one of the things is you talk about, it's hard to be in pain and to compose uplifting music or to be healthy and compose a funeral march. Yeah, yeah. I have to make a caveat on that a little bit because you listen to the last movement of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. It's like the best party you've ever been to. 
And and the guy is so depressed. Or, or you listen to the third movement of the Patatique, the sixth symphony. Uh-huh. joyous music um, or, or Beethoven's when he was writing the Heiligenstadt Testament, when it was his suicide note, you know, he was uh-huh. writing the second symphony, the, the most happy music in the world. I guess I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent a bit, but yeah. in a nutshell, I think us as performers, like that lies on us. To bring people in. By the way, you do this beautifully because I remember when you played uh, Berlioz Fantastique, you gave a beautiful speech, I mean, beautiful lecture, not speech, lecture about this. And that actually helped you to understand the, you know, the music so much better. So you, you can do that, but I would argue that even that's not enough. Again, I, this is, I'm not taking anything away from this music because it is beautiful and I love it. So don't get me wrong. But I think you need to stop. This is like, Okay, this is a horrible analogy, but this is crack you like crack cocaine, where you need to start with spot. Okay, so this is what this is why I call the gateway drug to classical we're going, music. We're going back to Berlioz now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's right. But so let me give you. Let me just read it to you, and you see what I mean. I start with the Mozart's Piano Concerto Number Twenty One and uh, First Movement, Rachmaninoff uh, Rhapsody on Timpaganini Number Eighteen. Then uh, Greek's piano concerto number number one, second movement. It's a, what, what, I, what I what I see what I'm doing. I'm doing very selectively. Yeah. Because even though the whole concerto is beautiful, don't get me wrong, but that is you can't help but fall in like not to fall in love with the concerto. This one has a perfect track record. I'll give you this. Uh, Shostakovich piano, piano concerto number two, oh. Andante, uh, oh. uh, second movement. Yeah, the one he wrote for his son. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. So uh, I'll give you a, a couple more. The uh, uh, Chopin's Piano Concerto Number Two, I think, uh, second movement again. Uh-huh. By the way, it's like Wonderful. second movements usually. They're, they're the, you know, that's, that's where the they, heart and soul is. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what I did, I did it in a very uh, surgically, like the, this playlist is. I'll send. I'll send. Um, you know what I'll do? I'll send you link to this so you can put it in the show notes. I'll share it with you. Yeah, I'll share it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll share yeah, it with because, our audience too. Yeah, yeah. Because I think it's a, like I, I I share it with a lot of people who, after reading my article, say, I would like to learn about classical music, but I don't know where to start. And that's why I did it. After this, you can go to crack cocaine. So, <laughs> Well, for, for, for those of our listeners who aren't necessarily into classical music now, Vitaly's just given you a roadmap to get there. If you've gotten this far in the podcast and 
And now you're saying, okay, I've never heard, I don't know some of these composers. I'm going to go check it out. Here it is. Like, right. Don't listen to my recommendations. Listen to Vitaly's, start with Vitaly's (laughs) recommendations and then go to mine. (laughs) (laughs) No, but by the way, this is like your, your recommendations are step two. Yeah. Which is, I agree with you 100%. That's the crack cocaine. That's right. It's a step two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you go to Berlioz and with the opening. And then you and then you go to Berlioz, yes. Then you go to Berlioz, yes. I'm very grateful, Vitaly, for your, you know, contributions to music and this art of life and bringing the art and the craft together. And it's been such a great uh, joy speaking with you. Devin, it's, it's my pleasure. And thank you for being my friend. And thank you for all you do for classical music. And I really mean this. You, know, you are one of the biggest champions in Colorado. So, so thank you for that. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. Thanks to Vitaly Katzenelson for sharing his wealth of knowledge. You can check out Soul in the Game wherever you get your books and myfavoriteclassical.com. Thank you to all the amazing performers featured on today's show. Valentina Lisitsa, Michael Francis and the London Symphony, Roger Norrington and the London Classical Players, Valerie Gergiev and the Vienna Philharmonic, Yevgeny Mervinsky and the Leningrad Philharmonic, Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic, Long Long, Daniel Berenboim and the Chicago Symphony, and Bernard Glemzer, Anthony Witt and the Polish National Radio Symphony. You can learn more about Vitaly at contrarianedge.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music.